This talk was recorded by Insight Meditation South Bay in Mountain View, California. For more talks and information, visit www.imsb.org. I have to do fewness of wishes. It's one of those things you just, you just know right away. You look down the list, oh, that's, that's the one. So, of course, this comes from the Anguttara Nikaya, as you probably already know. And it comes from this part that starts with, This Dhamma is for one of few wishes, not for one with many wishes. This Dhamma is for the contented, not for the discontented. This Dhamma is for the secluded, not for one who loves company. This Dhamma is for the energetic, not for the indolent. This Dhamma is for one of vigilant mindfulness, not for one of lax mindfulness. This Dhamma is for one with a concentrated mind, not for one who is unconcentrated. This Dhamma is for the wise, not for the one without wisdom. When I first read this, I thought, oh, well. (laughs) It sounds like if you don't have all these qualities, forget it. You know, this dharma is not for you. (laughs) Obviously, this is not what the Buddha had in mind. Really, what he was saying is, these are the eight qualities that you should be aspiring towards. You should be aspiring towards few wishes, towards contentment, towards energy, towards mindfulness, towards wisdom. Uh, He's also sort of pointing to the truth that uh, this is not an easy path. No. No path that is worth the name of path with a capital P is easy. And so he's he's being pretty honest here. (laughs) You know, if you're not willing to do these eight things, there's not a lot of hope for you. But of course, I'm preaching to the choir because you are all here. Even those of you who are new tonight are here because there's something that you know. And actually, you know it all. Somewhere deep inside of us, everything that you need to know is already there. So I wanted to talk about fewness of wishes, uh, which another way to title it would be to want what we have. This comes originally from an article that I saw years ago by a man named uh, Leonard Pitts Jr. And I can't remember what magazine I saw it in. It's too bad. But the article was, Materialism Rules the Holiday. It was clearly written around, you know, Christmas. But there was one thing that struck me that I wrote down at the time And I remember giving a talk about this eight or nine years ago. But when I saw this fewness of wishes, I thought, it's timely to talk about this again. At one point in the article, he said, maybe wealth begins the day you are finally able to want what you have. Finally manage to say something that none of us, rich or poor, ever seem able to say. I have enough. 
I don't need anything more than this. Who do you know, including yourselves, that believes I have enough? I need nothing more. I would like to believe that I think this. (laughs) And yet, when the catalog arrives in my mailbox and I'm distracted by the cute thing that's on the cover, and I open it up, something I never wanted, because I didn't even know it existed, suddenly becomes something I want. Madison Avenue has figured this out about us. Economics and marketing are completely against us. As long as more is possible, however improbable, Desire will arise to meet it. So if you go back to the very original teaching of the Buddha, the Four Noble Truths, we know the first truth is that of dukkha, suffering, or I actually prefer dissatisfaction. So dissatisfaction is pretty simple stuff. We think of suffering as some very big thing, but it can be a very small thing, like I drink this water and it doesn't taste right. It doesn't taste like the water I'm used to. It's a small thing, but the thought arises, hmm, this isn't quite right. right. So suffering is not a big deal. Dissatisfaction is not a big deal. It can be very small. It is just the distance between what we want and what actually is. It can be like this, or it can be like this. Suffering is unreliability, ambiguity, ambivalence, the imperfection of daily life. Pretty straightforward. We all experience it. And then he went on to say, you know, there are these root causes of suffering. Thirsting, desire, sometimes called greed. And this is just the compulsion to get what we want. I want, I want, I want. Then the second one is aversion. This is the opposite. I don't want any of that. And uh, I gave the example last night to my own group that when the summons arrives in the mail to do jury duty, huge aversion arises in me. And this is not because I do not wish to do my civic duty. But of course, there's all kinds of reasons. It's inconvenient. It's going to take a lot of time. Or in my case, I was on a terrible murder trial years ago, and I never want to repeat that. So it is true. The smallest thing, you know. I I see the envelope and go, So aversion is that compulsion to get rid of what you don't want or the being unable to accept what's in front of you because it isn't what you did want, one way or the other. You're not getting what you want. But then there's this third one, and for years the meaning of this eluded me. And this is the one that is called either ignorance or delusion. And, and, you know, for the longest time I thought, well, you know, how do you know you're deluded? Because if you're deluded, how would you know, right? You're deluded. It's a problem. It's a real catch-22. But 
what you have to understand is that what the Buddha was talking about was what were we ignorant of? You have to ask that question. What are we ignorant of? Well, what the Buddha was talking about, we are ignorant of emptiness. Right? In, in Zen Buddhism, it's called emptiness. But you don't have to think about it that way. You can think about it as connection. We are ignorant of the fact that we are all fundamentally not separate. Okay. And that there is no such thing as a permanent you. There is no such thing as a permanent anything. It may take a long time, but eventually this wooden bench here is also going to fall into dust. Everything is impermanent. And the more we know about physics, it's so wonderful. I think it's so, it's so funny now. People are always saying, oh, you know, you know what the scientists say about meditation now? <laughs> it's like, yeah, but 2,500 years ago, they already knew this. They knew it was good for you. They didn't know about the chemistry in the brain, but they figured it out. But now the scientists all say it's good for you. Well, the other thing that science says is that everything is made out of moving parts. Atoms, quarks, protons, neutrons, it's all moving. It's just in something like this, it's moving very slowly. But everything is in motion. So before I came, I had a sandwich. And before I ate the sandwich, I was one Misha. And after eating the sandwich, I am becoming a different Misha because now I have bread and mayonnaise and lettuce and egg salad in my system and it's all being passed through my digestive system and it's going into the mitochondria and I'm getting more energy and oxygen is moving around. I am not the same person. And when I leave here, I will not be the same person again, and neither will you. You are not the same person that walked in. Partly because you just sat in meditation, and as the scientists say, that changed your brain. Okay? Fundamentally, everything is empty of a separate, unchanging, permanent self. And as long as we are ignorant of that fact we are going to create suffering for ourselves and everyone else. Because the best description that I have ever heard of this comes from the teacher Reb Anderson. He says, um, the fundamental delusion of human beings is the belief that we exist separately and independently from the rest of the universe. Which right away you know cannot be because after all, you drove here probably in a car in which case you had to come in the car, which had to be built by somebody, and you had to use fuel in it, which had to be gotten by somebody and gotten to you by somebody, and furthermore, you had to come on a road, which had to be made by somebody. So right away, just driving here in your car, there's a lot of somebodies involved in it, and a lot of things, metal and fuel, minerals and asphalt. So he says... There is the whole universe a human thinks, plus something. And that something is moi. (laughs) Well, of course we think this way. I'm in this body 24-7. And I'm looking out at the world. I'm looking out at all of you right now. And I think there's me and there's all of you. But of course, each one of you is thinking precisely the same thing. And we can't all be the center of the universe. 
you know, (laughs) it's not really possible. There can only be one center by definition, and we are not it. So, we are not permanent. We are not separate. We are, as Thich Nhat Hanh would say, we we inter-are. We are interbeing. We cannot move a muscle without something being affected. The moment I walked in tonight, something changed. And the moment you walked in, something changed. Whether you are new or you've been coming here for 40 years, it doesn't matter. Everything you do changes everything else. And that is a scary thought. Makes, as Kobanchino Roshi used to say, you know, when you really deeply understand this, makes a person just want to sit down. Because you have more power and influence than you think. So the Buddha goes on, though. So first of all, you know, yes, there's dissatisfaction, there will be suffering, and there are these root causes, the biggest of which is delusion. But hey, greed and aversion, they have their big part. But then he says, there is an ending to it. All right. However, this is where it starts to get hard. You know, we can understand the suffering part and we know we don't want to do it. Nobody likes to suffer. And we can pretty easily begin to understand the root causes, but then it comes to the ending part and then we have to do some work. So first of all, we really deeply need to understand emptiness. We need to understand this delusion that persists that I am me, and you are you, and never the twain shall meet. Right now, we're all sharing oxygen. And, you know, at what point does it become mine versus yours? Hmm. So the second is we have to become aware of the three poisons as they are arising in us. And notice even the emptiness of the arising because even the arising changes. (laughs) Nothing is permanent. Even your poisons are not permanent. They move around. Sometimes it's greed, and other times it's aversion, and sometimes it's delusion, and sometimes it's all three at once. But when we start being aware of them, it allows for the possibility of change. Maybe even stopping that arising. So it's very hard for me with anger. You know, anger comes up pretty quickly. Not big anger, you know, annoyance, irritation, the small stuff comes up pretty quickly in me. It's just an automatic, habitual response, and I come by it honestly. My whole family has, you know, done this for years. And I've been working on it, well, I've been a monk for 30 years, so I've been working on it a long time. And still it comes up. But I think the main difference is now I am much more aware of it arising. And I can catch it a little faster than I used to. And maybe I don't actually act on it as much as I used to. Maybe I can even begin to change my behavior. So third... Through the awareness of that arising, of your desire, or your aversion, or that self-oriented delusion, 
Maybe we stop our obsessive, neurotic behavior. Even if just for a moment, when it happens, oh, it is such a relief. The times when you think, wow, five years ago, I really would have been upset about that. And now it's like, oh, well, oh, I just, what a great moment. (laughs) Each of us has our tendencies. And we are probably going to have those tendencies for a very long time, maybe till the day we die. But the tendencies are also empty. They, too, are not permanent. And I will tell you how I know this. I am the expert now. I made a practice for myself all last year, which was I realized I was getting annoyed because people were not using their blinkers. It's almost as if they don't want you to know what they are about to do on the road. You ever get that feeling? They deliberately don't put their blinkers on so that they can whip in in front of you. Okay. So I found I was getting annoyed about this, and I thought, all right, well, do you always use your blinkers? No. Okay, well, you're probably irritating them too. Hmm. Okay, you're going to take it on as your mindfulness practice for the year. You are going to use your blinkers at all times. I live up in the mountains in this little tiny, no place, skyline, boulevard area. I even have been using my blinkers coming out of my driveway onto this little dirt road. (laughs) Because I decided if I was going to do this, I was going to have to do it completely. Well, the great thing about taking on a specific practice, a small one, just a small one, is you go through the whole realm of emotion. So in the beginning, of course, I was quite self-righteous and smug. Oh, look at me. I use my blinkers and nobody else does. (laughs) Aren't I a wonderful human being? And then there came this point when it started getting a little irritating. Oh, God, I even have to use my blinkers here going into my driveway? What have I done to myself? But you promised you were going to do this. All right. And, and then there'd be the, oh, that person's not using their blinker. There were all kinds of things. Or, do I have to use my blinker here? Or... Are you getting a little obsessive about using your blinkers? (laughs) You know, the whole range of emotions, all year long. But here's the great thing. I didn't even notice when it happened. I started using my blinker without thinking about wanting to use my blinker or needing to use my blinker or whether it mattered whether I used my blinker. I just started putting on my blinker at the right time in the right place. And the day I finally realized I was just doing it automatically, I thought, this is spectacular. Because what this means is you can change your habits. It seems stupid in the beginning. You're thinking, oh my goodness, she's talking about blinkers. But this year I took on a much more difficult practice. And I'm probably not going to have nearly as great a result This year I have taken on something that I heard about in a diversity class I had to take at school. Turns out there is a psychotherapist who many years ago noticed what he ended up calling the little microaggressions that we do to each other all day long. These are these little sarcastic remarks, 
or maybe even unintended slurs or, oh, really, that color does not look good on you. (laughs) Or, you know, small things, really small things, but it's the death by a thousand cuts by the end of the day. You you go home and you don't even know why you're feeling so... And it is because all day long, even unintentionally, we turn away from people. We make a gesture. Any number of things that we do that we are even not aware of, and yet the other person is taking in. He calls this microaggression. And I have been thinking about it ever since because it is one of those things that unless you are looking for, you are really unaware of. So my practice this year (laughs) is supposedly (laughs) to at least become aware of my own personal microaggressions. And they are tiny, but they are there when I can even remember to look for them. So, you know, I work with 250 children almost every day. The opportunities for microaggression with age 3 to 14 are unlimited. (laughs) Lack of patience. You know, telling a kid, you know what, I'm talking to this kid over here. Can you wait? Instead of, ah, hold on, I'll get to you in a minute. There's a real world of difference. But for that kid, that just that tone of voice can be the difference of whether it was a good day or a bad day. But the good news is, you can change. That is what emptiness is all about. It's the possibility of movement. Once we understand our interbeing and the fact that everything is in motion all the time, okay, fewness of wishes becomes possible. Fewness of wishes, wanting what we have, is fundamentally a combination of two things. Simplicity, and a very old-fashioned word that you are not going to like, renunciation. Renunciation has gotten a very bad name. Okay, It's actually a great practice, but it sounds so, I don't know, guilty and, and old school and, ooh, do we really do that anymore? Okay. Simplicity is just trying to live simply. Not accumulating. It's that bumper sticker, live simply so that others may simply live. You know, if you just think about it, it's pretty easy for Americans to figure this out. We don't live simply. We use up 30% of the world's resources while we are not 30% of the world's population. So we are not living simply. You know, if you read anything about other countries, what you find out is the staple diet of most countries, third world countries especially, rice and beans every day. We'd go crazy if we couldn't have, you know, at my house there's Japanese night, there's Mexican night, there's Italian night. <laughs> you know, I've, I've got the whole range and I can do simple things in all of those cuisines and it makes my life interesting. I'm not sure if I could just do rice and beans every single day. Even if you go to some place like Tassajara, which is supposed to be a Zen monastery, hello, what are they known for? Their food. Okay. So simplicity is about simplicity. 
It's about not having everything and not needing everything. But then there's this other part, the renunciation part. So simplicity is, not, is about not accumulating things, whether accumulating things or accumulating mind states, all right? But renunciation is about actually giving up things. There's a slight difference, right? So what I notice is, I have a few teachers, when they come to school every morning, I see them arriving with their Starbucks coffee. So they left home, they went to the Starbucks, and then they came to school, even though, in, in one case at least, I know that that teacher's route goes directly to school and there's no Starbucks in between. So she's actually had to go out of her way to go to the Starbucks to come to school, where, by the way, we have Pete's coffee in the staff room. So I think to myself, hmm, this is very interesting. We don't actually have to go out to have our nice coffee or tea. We could make it at home and take it with us. Barring that, let's say that's for some reason not possible, when you go to the Starbucks or you go to the Pete's or you go to your local coffee shop, you should be taking your container with you rather than using the containers there. Again, giving something up. You have to actually remember to take your cup with you and have it filled up. Maybe whatever it is for you, we all have our little everyday acts of luxury. And I'm not saying you should give up luxury altogether. We are not living in a monastery. What I'm saying is to think about it just as a possibility. So there's a a wonderful book called Stories of the Spirit, Stories of the Heart, which is a collection of teaching stories from around the world. And it's edited by the um, Vipassana teacher, Christina Feldman. And at the beginning of each chapter, she writes these wonderful things, and I'm going to quote from uh, a few of them. So she says, Simplicity and renunciation are acts of compassion for ourselves and for the world. She says, Gandhi once stated, there is enough in this world for everyone's need, but not enough for everyone's greed. And as I was explaining to my children this last week, we, I had a display in the library that had to do with environmental issues because Earth Day is coming and we're going to do a big deal. And there was one book that was called The World Hunger Crisis. And then there were other books of endangered animals and there was world population. And I I said, so what do you think this book has to do with anything? I don't know. has to do with hunger, right? I said, so did you realize that there are children in our own country who are the same age as you who do not have breakfast before they go to school? And it is not because they don't want to have breakfast. It's because there's no money to have breakfast. Their little eyes get big. (laughs) And then you start talking about, you know, the fact is, there's actually, as Gandhi said, there is enough in the world. But the problem is called distribution. And the problem is called greed. Because when we do not have fewness of wishes, when we want to have everything we want, greed, you know, thirsting desire, somebody doesn't get what they want. Because there's only a limited amount of stuff. 
So the Dhammapada even says, the original writings, you know, the Dhammapada says, don't try to build your happiness on the unhappiness of others. You will be enmeshed in a net of hatred. So how do we want what we already have? What is that? What do we have? (laughs) Well, first of all, folks, you are sitting here in a body. And it may not be the best body. And it may be getting to be an old body. And it may even be getting to be an arthritic body. (laughs) And you may have other complaints that you're going to your doctor for and getting operations for. and, And there are many of my friends who are dying in this body. But you do have a body. It's a miracle, actually, given how complicated the body is that we're as well as we are. But one time, many, many years ago, one of my teachers, uh, Blanche Hartman, had a heart attack while she was uh, back in New York. And she went into the hospital and she survived. And when she came out, she said, I remember thinking to myself, wow, every day after this, is a gift. And then she stopped herself and said, wait a minute. Every day before this was a gift. But she was pointing at something, which is true for all of us. The only time we really appreciate this body is when there's something wrong with it. And we're saying, Oh, I wish I didn't have the flu. I feel terrible. And then when we're all done with the flu, oh my God, it's so wonderful not to have the flu. For a while, we really appreciate this body. And then we forget about it again. Oh, my body. Until the next bad thing happens. Your body is a miracle. It carries you all day long. It holds this heavy head which contains this wonderful brain and it has this heart that beats all day long and this breathing apparatus that whether you are thinking about it or not works because if it's not working, you have to go to the hospital very quickly. It is said in Buddhism that the highest rebirth is a human rebirth because humans have the ability to be self aware. We have self-consciousness. And it's better than being born. You know, there are the six realms. There's the realms of the gods and the divas, the heroes and heroines, and the animals, and the hell realms, and the hungry ghosts, and us. And it is best to be born as one of us, because, you know, if you're a god, you're immortal. And if you're immortal, it's just like, ho-hum, here I am in heaven once more. Oh, la-di-da-di-da, nothing's ever happening up here, and I'm going to be living forever and ever. But when you're a human, you know somewhere out there is your death. And I hope that makes you feel like right now is a pretty good time. Because I have friends if you don't feel that way, who would be happy to change places with you? Because their death is coming very soon. They would give anything to have more days. And although my mother keeps telling me that she's 88 and she's ready to die at 90, I have a feeling when she gets to 90, she might be changing her mind. Because we do. Oh, I never want to live past this point or this point or this point. But you know, when we get there, it's like, you know, 
might be not so bad. Okay? Because it's a gift. And however bad things are for us, we're here for them, which is better than the alternative. Because someday you won't be. And that someday could be tonight. So right now, you see, the very fact of the imminence of your death makes your life so much more precious. So Christina Feldman also says, you know, simplicity in our lifestyles expresses a care and compassion for the world. Simplicity in our hearts, letting go of opinions and craving, is an act of compassion for ourselves. When we let go of yearning for the future, preoccupation with the past, and strategies to protect the present, there is nowhere left to go but where we are. To connect with the present moment is to begin to appreciate the beauty of true simplicity. Fewness of wishes is realizing there is nowhere left to go but right here. Our wish actually is just to be present. It seems very simple, but it's actually kind of hard to do because we are preoccupied with the future. That's called worry. And we are rehashing the past, and that's called regret. The only place where we're free of all of that stuff is in this moment right here, where there is nothing but what is. So what is the antidote to all of this greed and thirsting desire and yearning all the time? Hmm. Well, in Buddhism, it's called dana. Actually, there's two things. There's two kinds of givings. There's, there's dana, which you hear about every time you come. There's, there's the dana for your teachers. There's the dana for your group. There's the dana that you give each other when you get into trouble and you need help. That is the act of giving. But then there's what's called kaga. Kaga is the inner virtue of generosity. And it literally means, you're going to love it, <laughs> renunciation. Okay, see, I didn't make this up. So, dana and kaga together are giving and giving up. You have to be able to do both. It's not enough just to give and not be willing to give up. You have to do both. And together, they're understood as generosity in its largest form. It entails giving more or giving up more than is required, than is expected, or than is customary. We give. We just give. We don't worry about how much it is. We need to take care of ourselves. But you know, if everybody gave up their daily cup of coffee at Starbucks, let's see, my recollection is it's about $3 a cup now. That's uh, five days a week. That's $15 a week that you could be donating to the basket over here to your group. So it's always a balance. You know, you don't want to live like a monk, I know. But it is also the case 
that you want to develop your generosity as an act of compassion for the whole world. There is this twofold practice of generosity. The first part is that it helps us connect with others and with ourselves. And it clarifies that relationship between giver and receiver because if you are a person who is always a giver, but you find it hard to receive, you're going to be out of balance. And the person that you're giving to is going to feel odd. Because what we're striving for actually is reciprocity. To the point that the giver and the receiver disappear and all that's left is the gift. And this is hard. Because we tend to fall on one side or the other. We tend to either be a receiver or we tend to be a giver. And it's hard for us to do the opposite. And I come from a a long line of women givers, you know, which is not surprising. Here I am. But um, I have to work very hard to also receive and to receive in such a way that it's graceful and that I'm willing and that I honor the other person for wanting to give, that I'm actually encouraging the other person to give. And then I just give myself fully. And I can do that as long as I can also receive fully. We have to be willing to do both. And that includes the homeless person on the street. When you give to that person, you are receiving something from them and you must acknowledge that. And with each person, it will be different what you are receiving. Because it's not about money and it's not about things. It's about fewness of wishes, actually. Wanting what we have rather than having what we want. Christina Feldman says again, modern culture has wrongly learned to equate simplicity with deprivation. And it strives to fill our lives and minds with objects, information, and distraction. Does this sound familiar? We have become uncomfortable with silence for we have learned to equate it with absence and privation. The clutter of our lives blinds us to the precious simplicity that surrounds us and is within us. Too often we become possessed and imprisoned by the chains of our own accumulations and attainments. We live in fear of their loss. We evolve complex strategies to protect ourselves from failure and deprivation. And this burden inhibits our ability to walk with lightness of heart. The noise created through our own busyness deafens us to the wonder of silence. I am reminded of Scrooge here, by the way, who carried the chains and the money boxes of his life into his death. But because he was such a bodhisattva, he came back to warn Marley. Oh, give it away, give it away. Okay. It's a prison. It's the prison of desire. All these wishes we have, all these desires, everything we turn, every time the catalog arrives in the mailbox, ooh, there's something nice. Every time we're driving down the freeway, Madison Avenue is telling us, 
You are not enough. You don't have enough. You need this. You should have that. People will love you more. You'll be smarter. You'll be better. You'll be a fundamentally better person if you get our product. Madison Avenue has figured out our fear, and our fear is that we don't have enough, that we are not enough. And you are. You are all just perfect as you are. Everything you need, you already have inside of you. Deep down, actually, we know this, and that is why if somebody gave us the chance to change places with somebody else, you know, right at this moment, if there was anybody in the world that you could change, would you? I don't think so. I think if somebody actually had the, the wherewithal in science fiction, you know, to do this, you'd say, wait a minute, hold on. Better the one I know <laughs> than the one I might not know. I'd rather have my own problems. Thank you very much. I'm very familiar with them. I don't want to change places with anyone. No. Meditation practice is actually for you to become absolutely and completely the best you you can be. And you have this one small life to do it in. Don't let all your wishes get in the way of understanding that in a sense there is nothing to wish for. You have already been given everything you need. Thank you. So if anybody has something they'd like to add, Otherwise, blessings upon you all. <laughs> yeah. Perhaps too subtle a distinction, but how do you separate wanting the thing in the catalog to from wanting to put your blinkers on or to not have microaggressions? Because those are one is a good want and one's a bad want. Mm. I think that so if if you didn't hear to rephrase, it's the difference between, uh, she's wanting to know the difference between this wanting things and wanting states of mind and all of that versus wanting to practice, let's say, or wanting to stop a bad habit. Okay? So I think that is why in Buddhism they make the distinction, they call it thirsting desire. It's the desire that we are clinging to, that we must have or we are going to suffer. So, you know, you're eating your ice cream. So you got what you wanted, first of all. But then it's gone. Right? I can either say, oh boy, that was a great ice cream, and be done. Or I can, oh, it's already gone. I want more. That's thirsting desire. That I'm not satisfied. Even once I've got it, I'm not satisfied. So the desire to practice is not a clinging desire when you think about it. It's just you sit down and you are returning to your original mind. But the desire to keep grasping things, to hold on to them. So for instance, in your mind, 
when a thought arises, you can always know when you're suffering from desire, thirsting desire, because you don't want to let the thought go. So especially when I'm caught up in anger, for instance, you know, I might find, okay, go back to your breath. Oh, but if they had just done this, off you go again. Uh, I'm still clinging to something. I'm clinging to wanting to either be right or I'm clinging to being offended or, you know, whatever it is that's caused my anger. I can't let it go. That's what we're talking about. That's the, that's the kind of neediness and the clinging desire that separates it from the positive aspiration to just let go of everything. Anybody else? All right, have a lovely evening. <laughs>